All righty, good morning. Compelling arguments that we heard in the first hour. I like to call those the therefore what. So, listening to Brother David, when the seed had to continue the promised seed through Isaac, and Abraham was told to offer him, that's the question that you would pose to all the detractors of uh, resurrection, is that if Isaac died and stayed dead, therefore what? Well, God cannot lie, so therefore what? He had to be raised to have children or progeny. So those are, and the same with the David example, those are the right to the heart of the matter. So I really enjoyed that. Brother Brian Forbes had brought a verse to me a couple years ago in regards to the peace and safety when we were looking into this in depth, and I'd like to read that verse. I had it in my, my other Bible, but he brought it to my attention this morning. When we look at Isaiah 60, verse 18, which is the verse that he brought to my attention, it reads like this, Violence shall no, no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. So truly when they return to Yahweh, this is the wall of protection. This is the wall of salvation that will be round about them. And their gates, or their entrances, they're going in and they're going out, will be praised. Now we jumped into our topic, which we need to, of returning back to Egypt or the second exodus. Because to me it is another therefore what. If Israel is found scattered into Egypt, therefore what has happened? Who has scattered them? Why are they there? In terms of the region and the area, how must they be regathered and brought back to Jerusalem? That's the question that has to be reconciled. And we're going to start our discussion of this in Isaiah 11.11 as we continue through our notes. And we're looking at verses uh, specifically, we'll look at 9 and 10, but really all the way through 13. So if we back up and start with 9, we get context which says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And then 11 through 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, which is Babylon, and from Hamath, which is Syria, and from the islands of the sea. And you go back, and you look at Joel 3, and you go, well, does Joel 3 talk about scattering to the sea, and to the, to the Grecians, when this terrible time of Jacob's trouble, and the over, uh, overrunning of Jerusalem? It absolutely does. And again, we have this linkage. The prophets are all talking about the same thing. Verse 12, And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, the same language that's described in Isaiah 16, be a covert for my outcasts from the face of the spoiler, that is, the Jews fleeing from the face of Gog, and gather together the, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. And then we can look at Ezekiel 37 for that bringing together of the whole house of Israel, bringing them into one uh, symbolic stick in the hand of Christ and the saints. So the ensign is Christ. The healing of Judah and Ephraim is the event in Ezekiel 37 where both nations are rejoined together as one symbolic stick in the hand of the Son of Man. In Zechariah 10, 6 through 12, which it would be good for us to look at, We'll flip over to Zechariah, chapter 10. And we're looking at 6 through 12. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them. For I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad, their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. For I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow among the people, and they shall remember 
me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. And I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and will gather them out of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So here clearly we're talking about another association or another dispersion into Egypt and the recovery from that place, from that land. The Assyrian is the latter-day Assyrian spoken of in Micah chapter 5, who was none other than Gog, the king of the north, the spoiler and the extortioner of Isaiah 16. The invasion and scattering of Israel, though divinely allowed, will not be tolerated. For in that day, for thus saith Yahweh to Zayat, after the glory, which is now being manifested in the land by Christ and the saints, quote, hath he sent me unto the nations who spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. So we see here a section out of, uh, from Brother Thomas, in Eureka, Volume 2, Part 2, page 559, at this crisis then of extreme peril to the Jewish population of Palestine, of that tenth indicated in Isaiah 6.13, or also you can refer to Zechariah 12.7, that representative Judah in the land, that being that the tenth of Judah shall be saved first, those that are gathered in Israel currently and have been scattered, they will be redeemed first, and then, when they are brought back into Jerusalem in the train of the March of the Rainbowed Angel, this going out into all the earth, the mid-heaven uh, gospel goes forth, and this gathering of the ten tribes, Ephraim, takes place to bring together the whole house of Israel. And we continue to move into that ramp-up period of the kingdom age. And that's before the next phase, which is the goodly horse, and the battle axe goes into Europe and the Roman apostasy. Continuing here, the fury of Adonai Yahweh comes up into his face. His eyes become as a flame of fire, and his countenance is the sun shining in his strength. He comes out of Egypt, as, as it is written, Out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. This was true of Israel, my son, my firstborn, in Exodus 4.22. In the days of Moses, it is true of the child Jesus, prophetically named Israel in Isaiah 49, verse 3, the beloved son of the eternal father in the days of his infancy, Matthew 2:15. And it is true of Israel in Egypt and of the rainbowed angelic son of man, the Yahweh name, their king, in the day when Gog, in the latter year's manifestation of the little horn of the goat, the king of fierce countenance, shall stand up against the prince of princes. Daniel 8.25, the son of the eternal father in these several manifestations of sonship is called out of Egypt. But affliction attends the son more or less in Egypt. They must sojourn in Egypt because of distress in Canaan. And how can Israel sing for joy of heart in a strange land while the land of their inheritance is trampled underfoot or under the foot of the spoiler? Hence the testimony, quote, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction. We think of Israel's first exodus through the Red Sea pursued by Pharaoh and shall smite the waves of the sea and all the deeps of the river. The Euphrates shall dry up. That is the meaning of that river. And the pride of Assyria, or of Gog, the latter-day Assyrian, shall be brought down. And the scepter of Egypt shall not depart away, which we read in Zechariah 10. In leaving Egypt, then, the rainbowed angel leads Israel out as a trembling bird, from Hosea 11.11. 11. He does not lead them by the isthmus of the Suez, but after the example of Moses and the angel, his prototype, he leads them to the seashore. Quote, was thy wrath against the sea, says the Spirit. Thou didst, didst ride upon thine horses, thy chariots of salvation. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, says the prophet, as representative of, of his people in the flesh, quote, my belly trembled, 
My lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble, that day so great that none is like it, even the time of Jacob's trouble, out of which he shall be saved. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So having destroyed the tongue of the Egyptian sea and brought Israel up again from its depth, the rainbowed angel leads them into the wilderness of Paran. Now again, uh, from, from Eureka, Brother Thomas makes these interesting remarks. But it is written, Yahweh rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And the vanities of Egypt shall be moved in his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. We're reading from Isaiah 19, verse 1. And this is uh, part of our next section. In this invasion of Egypt, then in, the, then in the hands of Gog, the king of the north, who hath power over its gold and silver and precious things, from Daniel 11:43, The troops of Sinai, that is Christ and the saints, would have to march around the head of the gulf of Suez or to pass over the sea or through it. The last alternative seems to be the course to be adopted at some epic of the enterprise, which will probably be on return from the conquest of Egypt with the regathered Jews in their wake in the march to Zion. I will bring again from the depths of the sea, saith the Spirit, in Psalm 68:22. And these words were written in Jerusalem, implying that they were coming toward Zion from the south. In Psalm 66, after announcing the universal subjection of the nations, the reader is invited to the contemplation of the means by which this conquest is carried out or effected. It says, quote, Come and see the doings of Elohim, terrible of deed towards the sons of men. He turned the sea to dry land, and they passed through the river on foot, and there did we rejoice in him. That's a very interesting phrase. And Isaiah says, Yahweh shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it into seven streams, and cause men to go over in shoes, as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So this future event is like a past event, which already happened. So what are we to do with this? Isaiah 11, 15 through 16. So, brothers and sisters, this is clearly a, an event that is yet to happen, a second exodus out of Egypt. And yet we further read in Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 11. You would turn over to that. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab, which is better rendered Egypt, and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. But they will come through the waters of the deep, through the depths of the sea, for the ransomed out of Egypt to pass through or pass, um, pass over is the phrase. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 19, because this chapter in total deals with this issue. The source here, which I think is excellent, is the Ministry of the Prophets, the book of Isaiah by Robert Roberts and C.C. Walker. It's a difficult book to find. I think it's out of print. But I will give you one website that uh, allows you to find these old Christadelphian books worldwide. It's kind of like an eBay for old, outdated books. It's called Abe, like Abe Lincoln, abe.com. Just put in title and author, and you'll find somebody that has it for sale somewhere around the world. That's where I uh, was able to find the out-of-print book, uh, History and the Apocalypse by Bolton. 
and also this book. As we can see on the overhead, this quote here from the uh, uh, chapter 19 out of this book gives the assessment here. The prophet Isaiah by the Spirit reveals various matters concerning Egypt's smitings and healings at the hand of Yahweh from that day to the time of Christ. We bring our attention to the first salient point or evidence that indeed we have a relation to Christ and the time of the end. In verse 1 we read, Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. The manifestation of Yahweh in Egypt had been literally connected with cloud and darkness, ages before Isaiah's time. The pillar of cloud that indicated his presence in Israel and directed the movements of his camps was a matter of notoriety in Israel's history, as also was the terrible manifestation on Mount Sinai. But the language here has to do with a future vindication or redemption by Yahweh of Israel in the land of old-time bondage. With the nature of that vindication or redemption, we are acquainted from the scriptures, which tell us that it is to be wrought by the manifested presence of Israel's God in Jesus and the saints. With the tribes of Israel, with the tribes of Israel under them, or in the process of being redeemed, as Israel of old was under the direction of Moses and the elders of Israel. This divine manifestation is frequently spoken of in the scriptures under the beautiful figure of clouds as God's chariot of war and victory. And we do have to understand the symbolism that is utilized when the figure of clouds is represented in scriptures. Thus it is said in the Psalms 18:10-11, quote, He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place, his pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And again in Psalms 104, verse 3, which I'd like to look up quickly. Psalm 104, verse 3. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. So Daniel in his vision saw one like the Son of Man come with clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive the everlasting kingdom in Daniel 7.13. So the clouds symbolically stand in some connections for angels who are higher than men and in others for men raised to angelic nature. For the saints are, are to be made, quote, equal to the angels. And the apostles speak of them under the figure of clouds. Thus Paul speaks to the Thessalonians saying, quote, We which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall be caught away together with them, the risen dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians 4.17 And in Hebrews 12 he speaks of the faithful dead as, quote, So great a cloud of witnesses. In Revelation 1.7, John says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And in chapter 14 of the Apocalypse, one like the Son of Man is seen sitting on a white cloud, crowned with gold and armed with a sharp sickle, with which he reaps the harvest of the earth in the outpouring of the wrath of Yahweh. So we have ample evidence to understand clouds as being representative of changed ones or holy ones or saints. Yahweh rideth in on clouds, with clouds, as his chariots, this cherubim aspect. And so this is what is happening when we look at Isaiah, Isaiah 19, verse 1. These figures prepare us for the conclusion that the language of Isaiah 19 proclaims, a future manifestation in the land of Egypt exceeding the wonders of the Exodus under Moses. In the days of Moses, the idols of Egypt were moved at God's presence. For the angel of his presence wrought with Moses, and, quote, against the gods of Egypt, he executed judgment. And their priests and their magicians could not stand before Moses. But since Isaiah's day, some 700 years before Christ, we do not find a history or in history a trace of any such divine phenomenon. Nevertheless, it is decreed for Egypt, as it is also for the land of Israel, that it shall shake at his presence when he is magnified 
and sanctified and made known in the eyes of many nations, from Ezekiel 38. Now, there, uh, there has been a long history regarding the domination of Egypt, first from Assyria in Isaiah's die, uh, day, uh, Sennacherib's son, uh, Esh-Haradan, invaded and subdued Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar, acting as Yahweh's servant, conquered Egypt, as declared by Jeremiah in Ezekiel chapters 29 through 32. The Persians would be next. They'd be followed by the Greeks. Of course, you know, the city of uh, Alexandria is named after Alexander the Great and is a witness to this day. Then came the rule of the Ptolemies, spoken of in Daniel 11, then the Romans, and finally the Muslim Turks. But Daniel 11:42 through 43 specifically points us to the time of the end and to the event where Egypt would not escape from the northern invader and would fall once again under the hands of a, quote, cruel lord and a fierce king. The context of Daniel's prophecy in this place introduces upon the scene the same power as that spoken of by Isaiah in chapter 19. The king of the north comes to his end before Michael the great prince, which is none other than Christ and the saints. And Isaiah says that the Egyptian oppressor of the latter days shall fall before the Savior and, quote, the great one whom Yahweh will at that time raise up to Israel for deliverance. Isaiah 19, verse 20. Now, in verse 16, we read this from Isaiah 19. In that day shall Egypt be likened to women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts. Here's this dramatic shaking again, which is consistent in Ezekiel 38. We see it in Joel. We see it in other places throughout the prophets, this great shaking. The towers will fall. That's in Isaiah. This is all related to this earthquake judgment that is coming upon Gog and the day of the Lord. It shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. Now never from Isaiah's day to this has there been anything like this in Egypt. In all the past, Egypt has been more or less a terror to the land of Judah and will be and will yet be so again before the end. The Jews are more or less in terror perpetually in the Russian territory of the future lord of Egypt. And when he obtains possession of the country by conquest, that is, Egypt will be conquered by Gog, they, the Jews, scattered in there, will be under his terror and under his rule temporarily. Though there are few, if any, Jews residing in Egypt today as a population, there will be thousands before the second exodus takes place. And the south will be disposed to, quote, keep back Yahweh's outcast people, as was Pharaoh in the days of Moses. And so Yahweh says in Isaiah 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. When the time comes for this, Egypt will be made to fear Israel's God as it was under Moses. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things, as it says in Micah 7.15. The history of the Exodus will be repeated on a grander scale under the prophet likened to Moses, as Isaiah 11 and other prophets testify. Moving to verse 18 of Isaiah 19. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan, or that is the language of the Hebrews, of Israel, and swear to the Lord of hosts. And one shall be called the city of destruction. Now in Isaiah's time and before and afterwards, Egypt spoke her own language and swore to the gods of her country, to Ra, Osiris, Isis, Apis, and all the other gods that are associated with Egyptian apostate belief. Even the shaking that Yahweh gave the country by Moses did not eradicate this pagan belief system. But in the future it's going to be different. For of the coming day of judgment, Yahweh says by Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9, for then will I turn to the, excuse me, for then will I turn to the people a pure language that, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, 
My suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. And again in Zechariah 8.22, Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. But saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that Yahweh is with you. So thus it will be in Egypt and other countries as it was in the Persian Empire in the days of Ahasuerus and Mordecai, when, after the vindication of the Jews and the fall and the death of Haman, again an Agagite, a descendant of Amalek, uh, the Amalekites, which Agag is rendered as Gog, and also Gog is the ancient name of Scythian kings, and Scythians by any and all accounts historically have become and are today Russians. So it will be the same as in the day when uh, Haman was destroyed. The Jews' archenemy, many of the people of the land, became Jews during that period, during that wonderful story. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them, Esther 8.17. And Egypt will be accountable, quote, in the worship of the king and the Lord of hosts. For, as we read in Zechariah 14, if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14:18. Now, again, at the end of verse 18, we identify a city that is named Destruction, or in the Hebrew, it is... Heres, meaning of the sun, but the Septuagint has it as Asedek, as corresponding to the Hebrew Zedek, meaning righteousness. So reading through verse 22 in Isaiah 19, which we'll just read that here. And in that day shall, I'm mean, starting in 18, in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan or the Hebrew language, and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof, thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. Now, reading through verse 22, which we just did, we read of an altar being erected to the Lord. Our minds think back to the episode in Israel's history in the account of Joshua 22, when the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, returning to their possessions on the east side of the Jordan, after their service and war together with the other tribes, quote, built there an altar by the Jordan, a great altar to see. Now, the other tribes, hearing that the two and a half tribes had built, quote, an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel, were angry and prepared war against them, supposing that they had done it idolatrously. The explanation, however, assuaged their anger and appeased them perfectly. It was to the effect that the altar was a simple monument of witness to the fact that they belonged to Israel, though dwelling on the other side of the Jordan. And they called the altar Ed, for it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so this, quote, altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof will be monuments memorializing the fact that Yahweh has conquered and possessed Egypt just as he did Canaan by Joshua and his people in the days of old. And Egypt will be united with Israel in the worship and service of Yahweh just as the trans-Jordanic tribes of Joshua's day were with their brethren west of the river. So the Savior and the Great One promised came out of Egypt in his infancy. And the sites related traditionally to his sojourn, there are still in a manner venerated or to regard with respect, though sadly so in the eyes of those who are enlightened concerning him, which shall mourn for him. He is himself, in a sense, the Lord's altar. This is Christ, Hebrews 13.10. And a pillar of witness to who the everlasting pillars in the house of Yahweh, from Revelation 3.12, will be immortally, immortally related in the day of his coming. Current tradition 
uh, in terms of theology, has divorced from his name all idea of a future salvation to be wrought by him in the land of Egypt. But Yahweh's ideas and plans are not affected by human opinions. And the day which Isaiah speaks, when, like Moses of old, the Savior shall deliver them, Egypt will again be the scene of divine manifestation, all unexpected by the modern Pharaoh, whether it be Mubarak or some future uh, president that will be residing there. There will be another Moses, another controversy, more magicians exposed in various unexpected ways, and finally the country will be subjugated in blessedness with Israel to Yahweh. Read the final verses there, 23 through 25. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt, and with Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. So what have we learned? First of all, on the overhead here, in Hosea chapter 2, 14 through 16, we read, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor, which will now be healed. We know this is part of the march of the rainbowed angel around the Dead Sea coming through the valley of Achor, crossing the Jordan, through Jericho, and then into the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. As we read up there, uh, it will be now healed instead of cursed, that is the valley of Achor, for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, that is my husband, and thou shalt call me no more Baali. That is my Lord. So our summary of Isaiah 19, what have we learned? Jews have been scattered into Egypt. Egypt is a victim of Gog's invasion. Egypt is overrun and spoiled by Gog. Egypt is smitten. The Jews, and to a lesser degree, the Egyptians cry because of their oppressors. A Savior is sent to deliver the Jews, Christ and the saints. In response, an altar and a pillar is erected under the Lord. The city is dedicated to Yahweh, meaning righteousness. Israel experiences a second exodus out of Egypt by the hand of Christ and the saints. And we'll extrapolate more on this passage, this actual root, the second exodus out of Egypt. Egypt is healed and considered to be a third with Israel and Assyria, as we just read. There is to be a highway built, as we read in verse 23, through these south lands with both, which both connects the two countries of Egypt and Assyria and also leads to Zion so that both countries can serve the Lord. It appears to be a permanent way, capitalized, which the pilgrims will take in the time of the kingdom. Other prophecies of Isaiah show that it is first set up at the time the people of Israel are in distress in these south lands of their scattering and it is for them the way of the redeemed in their coming to Zion, the city of Yahweh, in the time of trouble, as described in Psalms 46 and also Isaiah 43:19, which makes a brief reference to this way. Quote, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Now our next analysis brings us to the scriptures and the prophecies where Israel will be scattered as a result of the overthrow of Jerusalem at the hands of the northern invader. And I've entitled this, How Salvation Comes to Israel. And we continue to reread key verses that reveal to us what will befall Judah, the time of Jacob's trouble in the latter days. Outcasts or refugees are scattered into Moab, where they find shelter temporarily, Isaiah 16. Jews flee into Egypt and cry because of their oppressors, which we've just studied in Isaiah 19. The holy city and the glorious mountain, the goodly land, that being Jerusalem, is taken by the northern invader, Gog, from Daniel 11, Zechariah 14.2, and Zechariah 12.2. Jews are deported out of the land in Joel, chapter 3, 
the rebels will be purged from the nations of or from the nation of Israel, Ezekiel twenty, thirty seven through thirty eight, and even two two thirds, quote, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but a third shall be left therein. Zechariah thirteen, eight through nine. So brethren, we will look more deeply into Israel's scattering scattering into the wilderness at the event of uh, this time of Jacob's trouble. The question we must ask, and then we must answer, is this. If Christ and the saints are the cause of the peace and safety which entices Gog to come down to the land of Israel, how can Gog be successful over Christ and the saints? Do Christ and the saints pull back and allow Gog to terrorize Israel after they have been redeemed and saved from the Arabs roundabout? This is the paradox we find ourselves in if we ignore these scriptures. These prophecies by these various prophets are the same prophecy, adding more detail in their unique approach, but all divinely inspired. They are not disjointed or disconnected. They're not separate prophecies that have no linkage to the rest of Scripture. And as we have made note, earlier in the week, we see it. Ezekiel 38:17, which we'll read again. Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? This is Gog being talked about throughout and by the prophets of old, that he would bring them, Yahweh that is, against Israel in the latter day. Now, I think we know enough about Gog. The linkage here out of Ezekiel um, 38:17 takes us back to Numbers 24. Amalek was the first of the nations to fight against Israel, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever, which is Numbers 24:20. It is clear that there is far more in this expression of God's intentions than the annihilation of just the Amalekites. To celebrate the victory of Israel over the Amalekites, an altar was to be erected. It was to be named Yahweh Nissi, or Yahweh, my ensign. And we've already read in Isaiah who the real ensign is. It is Christ. And so we see a foreshadowing here as well. And the reason why it was called is explained in Ezekiel 17.15, which reads like this, Because the hand of Amalek is against the throne of the Lord, therefore the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. But we know that the final end of Amalek which is typed and related to this Gogian confederacy, is that he perished forever. The implication is that in this war with Amalek, it would proceed apace when Yahweh revealed himself as Israel's ensign. This he did when he sent his son, who in a life of perfect obedience was crucified or lifted up onto the pole, and the Hebrew, Hebrew word is nes, which equals ensign, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Thus he destroyed in himself the condemnation, the Diabolos principle which energized the Amalekite nation and which motivates and guides those who prosecute the anti-Semitic, anti-throne of Yahweh war which Amalek began. We've talked about the relationship of Haman, and there's a whole exhortation, if not a week-long Bible school class in the story of Esther. And so to gain a few pages here, I trust that uh, you can make those connections there with Gog. If not, it warrants a further study, and it's an excellent study. So the invasion of the land by Gog and the taking of Israel is clearly described in Scripture in Ezekiel 38 and also Daniel 11. Ezekiel indi indicates that Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya are in this northern confederacy, but not Egypt. Egypt is taken, as it says in Daniel 11.42. And then the final attack that leads to, quote, the planting of the tabernacles of his palace in the holy mountain, or of his chief military tents, in Jerusalem, between the seas. But the drive beyond Jerusalem is halted. Edom and Moab, modern Jordan, uh, they escape from Daniel 11.41. Any challenge from the occupying and supporting power of Tarshish and her associates, the young lions, Britain and the U.S., 
has not been successful. It is at this time when the enemy is actually in Jerusalem that Yahweh arises for the salvation of his people. But at this point of crisis, Israel is in great distress because of the success of the enemy. The distress of Israel at this time is expressed in four different ways. There is a terrible slaughter of the Jews, the two-thirds, the cutting off, the purging of the rebels. Zechariah says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will, will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. Zechariah 13.8 Those who are saved in this time of trial are those who already had responded to the instruction of the Elijah contingency, which means that judgment has already happened for him to be dispersed on that mission to warn this one-third that is willing to incline their ear of the impending uh, judgment and destruction that is to come. And to have faith through this process, they are the remnant that will survive. So let's take the remaining moments here to look at this remnant concept and then we'll move into our final piece tomorrow, which is Israel regathered and sustained and preserved in the wilderness as Christ and the saints, moving in their rainbowed angel march, first deliver them from Egypt in a campaign. We'll look at where these two initial campaigns might be, one east, one west, and then the upward thrust all the way in uh, to the uh, up and around the Dead Sea into the city of Jerusalem to meet Gog and to destroy him. We need to briefly and highlight this uh, explanation of a remnant. And from the exposition of Daniel, page 101, Brother Thomas gives this good explanation. Quote, But they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. The natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, numerous as the sands of the sea, who have gone down to the grave, are not the Israel, the generations of the nation, that shall inherit the Holy Land, when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Christ, their seed, and all in him, shall possess it forever. It is only, quote, a remnant shall be saved, excuse me, of them a remnant, quote, who walked in the steps of that faith of their father Abraham, when he had yet, when he had, when yet uncircumcised. This is also true of the Israelites according to the flesh living contemporary with the overthrow of the king of the north. Quote, a remnant will be saved. All of them that, quote, abide not in unbelief shall be grafted in, for the deity is able to graft them in again, and only he. This latter-day remnant will be saved, however, in a different sense, from that in which the remnant in the grave will experience salvation. These, or those risen from the grave, quote, awake for living ones of the aeon to possess the kingdom and glory forever, whereas the others continuing subject to death individually are saved nationally from their downtrodden condition among the nations or mortal subjects, established as an independent and powerful nation in the Holy Land under the scepter of Jacob's star, whose dominion shall be acknowledged throughout the earth. Their salvation is a restoration to Canaan and a national regeneration to newness of intellectual, moral, civil, and religious life. These shall be the mortal subjects of the kingdom, elevated to favored nation status. A mortal Jewish priesthood unable to approach the Yahweh altar where officiate, will officiate to the Gentile world presenting their sacrifices. We read this in Ezekiel 44, 10-14. We get clues that mortal life will be prolonged in the kingdom for those that serve and obey Yahweh, but it is still a mortal life. Isaiah 65, 19-20 gives us an indication that the 70-year life, or three score and ten, may be different for those that will continually avail themselves of Yahweh's way, his teaching, and to be obedient thereof. And we don't dogmatically interpret this for you, but we submit it to you because I feel that it is a very compelling 
point that we at least have to consider. Isaiah 65, 19 through 20. And I will rejoice, excuse me, yes, that's correct, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall no more be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So we wonder if that gives a clue that we may return to a not only a uh, environment system pre-flood, uh, whether it be a um, canopy system. We know that scientifically, I believe it's gamma rays are the rays that hit us and make us age. Uh, if you study reptiles, you know that they grow until they die. So if you can imagine what would a 500-year-old crocodile look like or any other lizard, you know, we may have a linkage to uh, dinosaurs in terms of that, but that is kind of in the realm of speculation. But as we were, the wonderful thought that I was talking about uh, with another brother the other night was, who will be the children of the kingdom? It's our children to be raised by the angels until they have a time to make their own decision and what an absolute perfect environment to learn the truth and hopefully to cling to the truth will be the children of hopefully us who are immortalized to be raised by the angels and taught That is a wonderful thought and inspiration that I need to get my house in order to provide that opportunity for my children. So let's finish up with a couple of verses and then we'll close with this section. Still behind, but making good ground. Brother Thomas continues, when Michael the great prince stands up for the overthrow of Israel's enemies, he finds them and Israel shut up in unbelief. The Gentiles without faith in the kingdom and the Jews without faith in its king, both conditions being equally fatally fatal to a participation with Christ in the glory, honor, and incorruptibility and life, which are the special attributes of the princes to the regenerated Israel. He will also find a multitude of Jews in the Holy Land as faithless in Jesus as the generation that crucified him. For it is to make a spoil of these that Gog invades. These Jews that have returned in unbelief to settle the land from this 1948 period and onward, the calamities of war, however, greatly reduce their numbers. Whatever that number may be, it is diminished by two-thirds. Quote, in all the land, saith Yahweh, two parts shall cut off and die. Who are Daniel's people and their children for whom Michael standeth up? They are the righteous dead of Israel, both native-born and adopted. Secondly, the contemporary living believers who have obeyed the gospel of the kingdom. And thirdly, Judah's third part, or those residing in the land, the one-tenth representative, not of the literal tribe per se, and only exclusively of Judah, but those that are regathered there currently. This Judah's third part and the rising generation of the rest of Israel disciplined in the wilderness of the peoples subsequent to the fall of Gog on Yahweh's mountains. These are in the aggregate constitute the saints and the people of the saints, for whose deliverance Michael, or Christ, stands up in the time of trouble. So herein, brothers and sisters, we see a great purpose revealed by Yahweh for his remnant. There is another portion of Jews taken captive. Zechariah says half of the city of Jerusalem shall go into captivity. Also, Joel 3 speaks of the children of Judah and the children of Jerusalem being sold into the Grecians. Now, this took place after 70 AD, and there may be a similar happening at the latter day. It would seem that Jews flee, and some become captives in Egypt, as we've discussed, uh, chapter 19, where they cry to Yahweh because of their oppressors and then are saved. Thirdly, in addition to those who are killed and taken captive, Jews flee into Moab from the face of the oppressor. The majority of these are Jews who have hearkened unto Elijah's warning 
and possibly have fled there before Go comes down. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast. This is reading from Isaiah 16, verse 3 through 5. Speaking to Moab, hide the outcast. Beray, or expose to shame, not him that wandereth or has been scattered. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, the spoiler ceaseth, the oppressors are consumed out of the land, and in mercy shall the throne be established. He shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David. Now where did David send his parents for uh, safety and shelter? Moab. In addition to the escape into Moab, the Jews are scattered generally into the wilderness of the south. Isaiah refers to this in several chapters, particularly in chapter 41, where it says, quote, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Fear not, thou worm, worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. When these desert regions begin to bloom in direct proximity as the cause of Christ and the saints marching, that is to provide for those scattered Jews that are there. That is the whole purpose of those verses. And so I'll just finish this last paragraph and we're done. Such is the unhappy state of the Jews at this time. All their many years of effort in the land, the strength of their own hand, is brought to ruin. Israel describes their work of rebuilding and its spoiling by the invader. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shall set it with strange slips. In the day shalt thou make thy plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Isaiah 17.10 The prophet then describes the rushing of the nations like the rushing of many waters against the land in the eventide trouble. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, but Jeremiah says he shall be saved out of it. But not until Yahweh's purpose is accomplished. In addition to the blackness in the land, the Jews in Europe and all the land of the enemy will be in great distress because of the intense anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Just as the invasion of the land by the Gilgian Confederacy involved several steps, with the climax of that being he takes Jerusalem, so the steps of Christ will take several steps in deliverance of Israel and will also have a variety of preliminary steps reaching a climax in his saving of those scattered Jews the regathering of those Jews being led back to Jerusalem like a trembling bird, the decisive destruction of the assembled vast armies by the powers of figurative and literal earthquakes, hay, excuse me, hail, rain, fire, and brimstone, and finally, the standing upon the Mount of Olives, victorious and in dramatic appearance to the entire world. So we'll talk about the gathering out of the wilderness, the scattering tomorrow, and the sub subjection of the Arabs. And then that's Friday, folks. That's it.